Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1329 of the Survival Podcast, and we're going to talk about remote land, bug out locations, second homes, call it what you want to, the place that's not the place that you live, but it's a place that you could live if you had to, and you went there, and you might use it for other things. A real hardcore survival topic. Um, I, I think that the bug out location is something that's largely misunderstood, especially among preppers uh, and especially among non-preppers. That uh, There's a lot of non-preppers that have bug out locations, and they think bug out locations are crazy because they don't know they have a bug out location. And there's a lot of preppers that don't really understand the... The multiple things a BOL can do for you besides be a place to run when the zombies march. We're going to talk about all of that today. Before we do, though, let's take care of our housekeeping and start off with our sponsors. Uh, those sponsors do a lot to help take care of you by helping make sure the show's for you, uh, here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Today's sponsor of the day, number one, is JM Bullion. It was very important to me that I had a good place for you guys to buy silver and gold. When I had to let go of a previous sponsor in that space, um, I went out and looked for one. Now, I wanted competitive pricing, and the two places I knew of that had the best pricing were Monix and Atmix. And I contacted both of them, and I couldn't really talk to anybody at any kind of a, a real high level over there. And that just meant to me, if there was ever an issue, that I couldn't just get right to the top to get it solved. And I found JM Bullion, and they had better pricing than uh, Monix and Atmix on about 90% of the items that they offered. And I was able to immediately communicate directly with the president of the company. I knew I had the right folks. We brought them on as a sponsor. That was over two and a half years ago. They've made many wonderful relationships with members of this audience. And uh, they do a great job, and they still have that great competitive pricing. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. And remember, they do offer a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Yesterday, we had bulkammo.com as a sponsor, and I talked about the triangle of gun operator efficiency. And one of the things I said is you got to have a gun and you got to have ammo, but you also have to have the gun's operator. If you take a gun and load it and stand it in a corner, it won't do anything at all. That means that you, the human being, are the linchpin on which the entire system rests. So you need effective training. And it doesn't matter whether you're trying to avoid a confrontation, settle a confrontation, or put food on the table. Many of the things are universal and translate through the entire way. So you need that great training, and you need someone that will help you not just train, but learn to train yourself. You'll find that at Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors. They're not just world-class instructors. They're also perpetual students that take training themselves multiple times a year from other trainers to continue to develop their skills, both with firearms and in training you with firearms. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Uh, next up, our discount vendor of the day, the Soil Cube. How about starting a bunch of plants and not getting a bunch of pots to do it with? Just basically taking your potting soil mix and compressing it into a cube, throwing a seed in there, watering it, and ending up with a really strong, well-rooted plant that you can plant out into your garden or your homestead. And never buying a pot again. 
Is it possible? It is with the Soil Cube. Check them out today. MSB members, by the way, get 20% off. You can find out more at SoilCube.com. Go to the MSB to, uh, to get a special page to order the Cube from, but I'm going to advise you on this one. Go to their main site first. There's a lot of things on that site now that are not on the uh, place where you just get the discount on the Cube itself, and you might want to check out a lot of the information and ideas that are at SoilCube.com. Uh, in fact, even if you're not an MSB member, you might want to just cruise on by there today because you might get some ideas on even how to start your own plant business if that's up your alley. Now, that's a good segue over to talking real quick about the Members Support Brigade. What's MSB, or Members Support Brigade? It's the program that I use to pay the bills around here. It's my premium membership program for listeners of this audience that want to help support the show and also want a good return on their investment. I have discounts for you. Uh, to the Soil Cube, um, to, uh, well, hold on a second, guys. I'm sorry, I'm still recovering here. Uh, to JM Bullion, who we had today, to many of our other sponsors, and to a total of over 40 companies that I have negotiated discounts with for you. And I continue to look for more great companies to negotiate discounts with. And uh, if you want to... Uh, To get a really good return of your investment, just make sure when you join the MSB that you go to the benefits section and start buying from the discounted vendors who are selling things you're probably going to buy this year anyway. Most people tell me if they use their benefits, they get a two- to three-time return on their investment of $50 a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys get a discount Thank you for your service. If you email me before, not after you join, send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line in one or two sentences. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service. With that, let's get into the year that is the episode 1329. The year is 1329, the fur trade or the end of the world as we know it. Which one is it? How does any major disaster begin? It usually starts off small. With longer winters and colder temperatures, the fur trade is doing well throughout Otter Mongolia. The easiest and cheapest source of fur is a marmot, a large ground squirrel or woodchuck. But marmots carry a deadly disease, the bubonic plague. Occasionally, an entire family of fur traders is wiped out, but it is the risk they take. Currently, the problem is contained, and the local hunters have learned to never kill a slow-moving marmot. But soon, a series of natural disasters will push the marmots out of the wilderness into close proximity with human settlements, bringing the plague with them. At first, it will cause havoc similar to, the, similar to the Justinian plague of the 6th century, first real pandemic. The second pandemic will make the first look like a walk in the park. For now, just relax. Business is great in the fur trade. It's the normal chaos. Um, you know, my thoughts on that is you never know when something's going to rear its head. And uh, Alex Strug, who puts these together for us at the TSP Wiki, says not to panic that uh, plague is not a big problem in North America. But it does still happen in remote areas like remote parts of Central and South America. And I can tell you there's even risk of it in remote parts of the American Southwest. But I don't, I don't think plague is really the issue here. It's that everything can look good, and the problems that are there can look small, and it's only a matter of time until they mass, them, uh, mass themselves into something larger. So we always need to be prepared for that. And that's a good intro into our... Topic of the day, a bug out location. Um, I, I want to let you guys know right up front, like part of why I decided to do this topic today was I've had a few people say, hey, look, man, could you back off the permaculture stuff for a bit? And I'll never stop doing shows on, on permaculture because to me, if you want to survive, you got to feed yourself and you've got to build resiliency in your life and you got to see to your primary survival needs 
food, shelter, water, energy, security, health and sanitation, right? You got to have all of this stuff. And if you don't, you're, you're hosed. And, and modern survivalism is about having those things with redundancy. So if systems that normally you get them from fail, you still have them. And I haven't, I just haven't found a system that will give you more resiliency than permaculture, period. But I can see how me talking about 20 different plants uh, in a given show might really be up some folks' alley and not really up the alley of others. So I try to give you guys variety, and I also try to give you what you want. And I decided, you know, over the next few weeks, we'll do some more conventional survival-y topics, right? Some stuff that's generally talked about on prepper boards and things like that. And BOLs, or bug-out locations, are one of the most discussed things out there. In fact, it's the, it's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that say, well, if you, the only people that are real, real preppers have a remote location because you never know when you're going to need to go there. Um, I guess you never know when you need to go there is true, but the first part is certainly just nonsense. And it, it's funny how it's always the guy that has one that, that probably wants to be the one to say something like that. Um, it's just like authors. I, you know, I love authors that write, uh, post-apocalyptic works. Um, But usually you find that they always make a case that where they're at will be a good place to be during a collapse because they live there and they know it and they want to center the book around what they know, um, whereas it may not really be. I mean, I can say that about our good friend Glenn Tate, who I love. Uh, I can say that about James Howard Kunstler. I can say that about, I can't remember his name now, but the guy that wrote The Eagle Has Crashed. A lot of these guys, they, they just believe that they're going to be okay and they want to reassure themselves of that I think and and you know they don't write the story to be all all sunshine and roses but hey it's a lot worse over there uh, James Leslie Rawls falls in that category and I think that we have to be careful in any topic when we're looking at prepping if we're taking the advice of someone who has done something and then saying that one thing is necessary you're probably not getting an honest opinion. You're getting justification. So what I'm going to try to do today is I'm going to try to give you the the ins and the outs of a remote property. I haven't owned a remote property for quite a while now. For about six years, we owned a property in Arkansas that served that purpose. As many of you have been with me a long time know, we loved it so much, eventually we decided to move there. When we did, we sold our place in Arlington. And we were there for about two years. And we figured out that, you know, my wife's heart was really here in Texas and we decided to return. And when we made that decision, we realized that if we were going to have a remote property, that five and a half, six hours away was just too far. And we couldn't see ourselves really using the property that much once we walked away from it. So we sold it and we put the money into improvements for our new home, which I think was a good logical and financial decision. But every once in a while now, I find myself on places like Lands of Texas and Land Watch and United Country, looking at housing and looking at remote properties that are within three hours or less of where I live now. And, and that's become my number for, for distance uh, of a bug-out location. Um, in this show, I'll try to help you figure out what your number is. Uh, but I'll tell you that the closer, the better. I'll, I'll tell you that flat out. An hour and a half, two hours would be great. But Jack, what if there's a nuclear bomb? Oh, come on. If we have nuclear bombs, you're, you got other problems. Running your bug out location is probably not going to work. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. If you want a bunker in the middle of Wyoming buried 80 feet underground with a tube you have to crawl down like a giant uh, tube in a uh, submarine, and you want to stock 10 years' worth of food there, and you've got the resources to do it, man, I ain't going to stop you. I ain't going to put you down. I'm just going to tell you it's not what I would recommend for the average person. Um, let's talk about the three reasons you'd want a remote property. I find that no matter how anybody justifies owning a second property, that there's only three reasons that really, you know, really define any, any permutation of them. And they are one is a fallback location. Something goes wrong, I can go there. Okay. Number two, recreation. I can go there and go fishing. I can go there and go hunting. It's a nice getaway. It's peaceful. It's quiet. I can get away from the city, etc. ad nauseum. Uh, the third is investment. Uh, if I buy this and take care of it, it's land. Land tends to go up in value. Uh, if I make some improvements and if I'm strategic in what I do, it can be something that later in life, if I'm no longer needing to use it, not only can I recoup my investment, but I can earn a profit. And that's it. Now, that might seem obvious, but it's not. Because I've talked to enough people that have bought enough properties that have not considered these things when doing so and have made errors due to them. In fact, I would call them type 1 errors. Here's why this is important. Forget about what you're going to do for a minute, okay? Maybe you're going to buy a property, you have some coin, you're not really worried about it, you want a remote piece of property, you only want it for a fallback location, you're going to put some basic infrastructure, store some stuff underground, and you're going to go there whenever the hell you feel like it, but really, it's just going to be a fallback location, just so you know you have it. That's all you care about. And everything else I say isn't going to make a difference. You don't give a damn about recreation. You don't give a damn about investment. Okay, you're a prepper. The fact that you just made that one choice to have that tells me you're a person that comprehends things can and do go wrong. Right? Okay. So now this is where these other two factors come in. So something could go wrong in your individual life. And all of a sudden, you could really use $50,000 really, really, really bad. And now you need to sell that piece of property that you bought when you could just whip out the checkbook and write a check for that number. Got it? Okay. So now you need to sell the property. When you sell the property, your buying pool <clears throat> is not going to be made up primarily of people that see the property as a fallback location. Your pool of buyers is going to be made up primarily of people that see the property as a recreational property and an investment property. So we need to evaluate the property on recreation, investment, and fallback potential as preppers so that we have our own fallback, our financial fallback of divesting ourselves of the property. And if you're not looking at it that way, you are creating a major potential for Murphy to show up. And when Murphy shows up, generally what he does is he kicks you square in the nuts. So... When you leave the door open to Murphy, generally he finds his way into your house. If you're not familiar with Murphy's Law, Google it. Okay, So <clears throat> those are the, the primary things that you're going to look at. I want to talk to you about each of them from a standpoint of making the decision for yourself, though. Fallback location. Um, this is why a lot of people think, well, my bug allocation should be a remote place in the mountains of Idaho. Well... I would tell you if you live in, a, in the, the foothills of Idaho, that's probably not a bad idea. But if you live in Florida, that's probably not a good idea. 
you lived on the coast of Florida, I'd tell you that getting into central Florida where you're protected from hurricanes is probably a decent idea. Or southern Georgia or eastern Alabama or something like that. Because it, it gives you a buffer from your primary threat, tropical storms and hurricanes. It's at a reasonable distance, and you can go there for the other purpose of recreation, which we'll get to in a minute. So to me, a fallback location is about determining your primary risks and having a place that you can get to to divest yourself of those risks as much as possible. The next thing I would tell you, though, is it's not just about the risk of a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake that destroys your house. At least you have some place to go. Okay, And it's certainly not just about the zombies have marched, uh, dogs and cats are having puppy kittens, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's raining frogs and toads, whatever. It's also what can go wrong in your life. So if you have a paid-for place that's at least livable, and you just become financially destitute, you don't have any money, if you do some of the other things that I'm going to talk about today, if nothing else, you can go to that place and you can live. And then there's a, a fundamental reality that people don't consider a disaster. But it is for many people if they don't have an outlet. Um, we call it midlife crisis sometimes. But sometimes it doesn't happen midlife. Sometimes it happens early life. Sometimes it happens late in life. Sometimes there's just a point at which a person says, i got to figure out what to do with my life. And I don't know what to do with my life. And some people will then travel across the country in a cheap RV or something like that. That's not really for everybody, though. And sometimes that type of a life can actually make things more complicated, where what you need is simplicity. So that's another potential internal disaster that can be mitigated by just having a place that I can just pause. Whether it's a two-week pause when I take a, vac I take a leave of absence from work, and I can go back if I decide that's what I want to do, or I just have had it. And I don't know what to do with myself. If I have a place with reasonable stores and it's livable, especially if I'm single, I've got that option. Or if I've got a spouse that has that same kind of let's just do what makes sense for us now attitude and, and it's livable for her or him, then that's, that's fine too. So that's another way we can have this as a fallback location. There is always the individual disaster, though, that takes out your home. Okay, so this is, there was a fire. You have no house. You have insurance, but we've had people on about that. It's a long process before you have a house again. This is why I like closer rather than further. For many people, if you had a place an hour and a half away, even if it was inconvenient, it would be more convenient to live there than it would be to live in a hotel for a year, which can be what happens. This can also be said about storms, earthquakes, etc. There's all types of things that could put you out of your home. Those of you who are renters, because it makes sense to be a renter in your life situation, um, could end up in a situation where the property is foreclosed on by, by a bank. I, and, and I've never been through that, so I don't know if that would put you in the street or not, or if they have an obligation to re, you, you know, continue to rent to tenants. I just know that there's people every day that, you know, lived in a nice warm place one day and are on the street the next. And this is a redundancy for one of your five primary survival needs, housing. And from a fallback location, that's how it should be seen. 
I live here. If I can't live here for any reason, whether it's a partial collapse of the country or a storm that destroys my town or whatever it is, I can go here. So from the mundane to the insane, that's how it should be evaluated. From an investment standpoint, we should look at what makes the property desirable to other people, which I'm going to get into in just a second. But that's one of the biggest things. Um, do you see this as a property that other people are going to want to buy? If it's been on the market a long time, unless it's been like so poorly marketed that that's why, you really have to question whether that's the case. And when a property's been on the market for nine months, um, I'm not paying what they're asking. I don't care. I mean, at that point, I'm like, I don't care if it's your problem, the property's problem, whatever. We, we're not going to be doing that. So we really need to look at desirability of the property and what's going on in the area. What are the future plans of the area that could both adversely or positively affect the value of the property? If you had a property uh, where sooner or later it looks like they're going to build a really beautiful lake and it's not going to be like over top of your property and all of a sudden the property is going to go from being you know two hours from a nice lake to 15 minutes from a nice lake, If there's a reasonable assertion that that's going to occur, that might be a solid investment. And that's just one example. But I'll, I'll save all the desirable things for the next thing. But you have to think from an investment standpoint, not just why do I value this property, why would somebody else? Recreation. Recreation is actually one of the things that really is also kind of part of what makes a property desirable. But recreation is subjective. For some people, recreation is sitting on a porch, watching hummingbirds come to a feeder, listening to the sounds of a forest, and reading a good book and being the hell away from your normal life for a while. For some people, recreation is going out, standing a tree in the freezing cold and shooting a deer, hopefully. For some people, it's fishing. For some people, it's more camping-like. For some people, it's bushcrafting. For some people, it's having a nice little getaway to do the first thing I said, but it also damn well needs to be somewhere where, you know, mom and, 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 and her girlfriend that comes with you with their kids on a trip can go out and go to a little town and go shopping and stuff like that. I know that might not seem very recreational to some of you, but that is a recreational attribute, all right? And that is something we should consider. Trying to get the hell away from everybody completely puts your property low on the desirability stance to many people that you might want to divest that property to in the future. Or it isolates who sees it as recreational to hunters, fishermen, etc., outdoor enthusiasts. So to me, the best place is a balance. So let's talk about what makes a property desirable as a whole. And this is where you're going to get a little bit of permaculture. And, and you wouldn't even know it if I didn't tell you that's what it was. But when I give you my first things on my, three things on my list, water, access, and structure. Okay? And that's what I say. Like, permaculture solves so many problems. I'm not going to come at this from a permaculture standpoint. I'm just going to put, point out to those that might not recognize that those three factors in my list of about, what do I got there, eight, nine desirability factors, those three come directly from a property analysis from a permaculture perspective. Number one, water. Water is huge in making a property desirable. Moving water sometimes far more than a pond, especially navigable moving water. If you have a stream or a creek or a brook or a river, 
that borders the property that you can put at least a canoe or a kayak in. It opens up a whole world. In most places that I know of, if water is navigable, no matter where it goes, you're allowed to put a boat on it and go there in this country. So that means that even though you might have 20 acres and once you go down the river 150 feet, you're technically on somebody else's property. As long as you don't pull that boat up on shore and start going through their land, it's okay. And that water has amazing potential for so many other things. So water is something, and if you if you ever look at property, if it's on navigable moving water, the price goes up exponentially. That's bad from being a buyer standpoint, but it's a very strong position to be in as a seller, and there's a reason. It's not just to look at it and go, ooh, look, water. It's everything that means. It's probably a source of fish, which from a sustainability standpoint is huge. If it's on your property, you could set up things like automatic feeders to create chumming stations so that I'm just saying if you ever really needed fish and you went there, you know they're right here. That's, that's an important consideration, but at least ponds. And if there's not ponds, the potential to put in ponds. A well. So now we need electricity and utilities to run that well, but we also want to know, is it possible to put a well in here? And what's the cost? It used to be pretty cheap to put a well in around here, but now most of the guys that know how to do wells are so busy doing work for the natural gas guys, it's a lot more expensive. And there's places here where you can put a well in, you go down 50 feet. There's not a lot of rock, and there's water. Okay, fine. There's places where you have to go a couple hundred feet, and you're drilling limestone the whole way, like where I'm at. That's really expensive. I mean, the the value of the well on my homestead property is so high compared to its assessed value. It's unbelievable. It's part of why we got such a good deal on the property. If you build a house here today versus in 1979 when this was house was put in, and you had to drill a well today versus 1979, my God. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to put a well in here today. So water is not just, is there a body of water, but can I get water on my property? Because if I have to haul water, that's a big problem. It's also an evaluation of, can I put ponds on the property if they're not there yet, and how much will it cost? There's pieces of land you just look at and go, okay, one guy with a dozer for a day, and there'll be a pond here of a quarter acre. And it's easy. And there's places you look at and go, I don't know if it can even be done. And there's places you go, well, it can be done, but we're going to need a big excavator and a dozer and maybe a little bobcat for some cleanup work. And it's going to be a four- or five-day project, and I'm only going to end up with a quarter acre of water. Hmm, What's that going to cost me for a quarter acre of water? Is it worth it? And not only is it worth it, is there another property where that consideration is less of a concern? Because there's already a pond there. And it's really really a good idea to look at properties that have ponds on them, even if you want more ponds and there's other pond sites. The fact that a pond's there tells you that the land is suitable for pond construction. The best indicator you could have that ponds can be installed on a property is ponds on that property or on surrounding properties. It's not 100%, by the way. You go to one place and you got a lot of clay and you go 10 feet over and you don't. you got gravel. So you really have to think about it deeply when you're buying a property without water and you're planning on putting water on it, will it work? Is the ground condition right? Are, are there people there that know how to do it? Because it's probably not something you're going to spend a lot of time doing on your own. Um, access. How will you access your property? 
Well, there's a road that goes there. I understand that. But if we're talking a multi-acreage property, and it's hilly, and it's wooded, and you want to be able to get even ATVs and stuff like that to the back of the property, you're looking at putting in some sort of roads. And then you have to maintain them. And if you can put roads in there mostly on contour and then kind of, you know, have different spots where they, they, they come up and they hit another contour line and all, you can, you can make your roads a lot more durable. That's also a permaculture principle that will save you thousands and thousands of dollars on the maintenance of your property over time. But, you know, we don't have to go there. But access, we've got to discover in advance how will we get access to the various parts of our property, depending on our goals for the property. If we're only going to hunt there, we're going to have a little area behind the, the house cabin or we're going to bring an RV in and set up a pad or whatever, uh, it's not as big a deal, is it? But if we're going to have longer-term goals for the property that involve things like Maybe we're going to talk at the end about going up in with a group on this and putting in some tiny cabins throughout the property. Well, you got to get to all those locations, don't you? So you've got to think about access, not just to the property, but on the property. Structure. Structure. What existing structures are there? So is there a house there? That's ideal. I know everybody wants to buy a remote, empty piece of property and put a house on it of their own uh, or a cabin or do a prefab kit or something like that or an RV. Uh, it's not terrible as an idea, but if you have a house, so many things that you have to deal with are just gone. I'd rather have a place that has a house hooked up with a septic tank and electricity where what the house really needs is a match. <laughs> okay, That's its, its primary way that you would fix this house is with a half a gallon of gasoline and a match than have a piece of property with no structure at all on it. And I'll tell you why. I've already got septic, I've already got power, and I've probably already got water in some way, shape, or form, and I don't have to go to nobody to ask for permission to do nothing. And I can run power anywhere I want from a meter, just about. And if I've got a septic system, I can put multiple structures into that septic system. And if I'm in a remote property, even just a little bit remote, with no restrictions, which is also something I want then I'm in pretty good shape. That doesn't mean I would buy a property. I wouldn't buy a property with no anything, but I'd want to know what's it going to take when I put a structure on here to make it livable. When I say, because I don't really want to do this off-grid unless I have to. I can see why people would. I get it. But it adds a lot of expense that could go to other things that would let you move a lot faster. And it's easier to wean into being off-grid than it is to just go off-grid. In many ways, especially in southern states. Okay? And we'll build an underground house. Well, great. I'll have an above ground house that I can stay in while I build my underground house. God, you see, it's, it's just so much, it solves so many problems. So structure, distance. I was already talking about this. My outer limit, if I do this again in my life, will be three hours. If it's more than three hours, I don't want it. Three hours, I could get up early on a Saturday. I could leave this place at 5 o'clock, be there by 8 o'clock. If I wanted to do some work, I could work from 8 to 3. I could be home at 6 o'clock for supper. Four hours, I could do it, but I'm going to be really, really tired. Five hours, it's, a, it's an overnighter every single time. Two hours is about perfect as far as I'm concerned. Two hour, hour and a half, two hours would be ideal. 
And in my area, I'd prefer to go south or west or north rather than east, which unfortunately most of the good opportunities are east because I'm going to eat an hour just getting through the dadgone metro mess. That's what we call the metro, Dallas Metroplex. We call it the metro mess. Grid access to me is extremely valuable. I don't mind well and septic, especially if it's already there. But I want power. It just solves, again, so many problems. And also, back to the three reasons, fallback recreation investment. It is easier to sell the property as an investment property to somebody else if it's on grid. There's actually really good reasons to consider an off-grid property if you can make it happen. And one is you'll pay less for it. But the counterpoint, like I was talking about yesterday, everything in life, strengths and weaknesses. The, weak, the weakness of the off-grid property you pay less for is it has less investment potential. It's amazing how much the cost of living off-grid is up front and how resistant to paying for it the next buyer is. And what I'm saying is you can put in $30,000 worth of solar energy and the next buyer is not going to want to pay $30,000 in appreciated value even though if you hadn't done it, they're going to have to turn around and do it. It's a difficult sell in modern times. So even if you want to run the property with as little dependence on the grid as possible, I think it's a very desirable trait in a property that you can at least get power to it. Um, I think near a small town minimum is a good idea. When I say small town, I'm not talking about a place that's like Jabitville, population 12. I'm talking about a place with maybe at least a Walmart and a post office and a general store and a couple little mom and pa shops and a couple churches and maybe a rec center, something like that, minimum. The whole concept, if I want, if, if everything goes wrong, I want to get away from everybody as far as I can. Uh, when we were playing Conflicted recently, you know, one of the things I said when I was talking about keeping people out is if you really end up in that scenario, it will not be very long before groups that are established are recruiting people, not trying to hide from people. When we, when I look at the workload for me to run my three acre homestead, I, I don't want 20 acres anymore to myself. Maybe as a recreational property, but not as a homestead property. If you're actually trying to be productive with what you have and survive off land and resources, and if, if outsiders really are a threat, then there's strength in numbers all across the board. And then a small town is more likely to have cohesion in that environment and begin to set up commerce and trade independently earlier than you would see in large cities that are in chaos. So even at the most extreme version of the event, you're better off in a small town. And this whole thing, well, bands of looters are going to be running around like Mad Max or whatever. You know, if I was a looter and I wanted to steal from people, I would go to densely populated suburbs where idiots that have lots of shit live. That's just where I would go. Do you know why? Because they're easy to steal from and they have lots of stuff and there's lots of them. I'm not going to go out into rural, <laughs> rural America where every other old lady has a shotgun pointed at me when I come on their property with dogs that bite. And I'm telling you, crime statistics go down when you hit a dirt road. And you can't tell me, anybody out there, you guys can't tell me, whenever you've been somewhere that you've never been before, you turn onto a dirt road that looks like a well-traveled dirt road, starts to get more and more narrow, there's really not a place to turn around, and you're not quite sure where you're going, and then you see a sign that says private property, that you don't get a little bit of a sink in your stomach. Well, 
That reality will only become more so if we ever end up in one of those scenarios. The next is security. Security from multiple standpoints. I would rather have a property with a neighbor that can see my property that I talk to before I buy it and go, this guy's salt of the earth. This is a guy that it wouldn't matter who I am. If he saw somebody on my property that's not supposed to be there, he's going to intervene. He's going to do something about it. At least, if nothing else, he's going to call me and ask me, hey, are you guys there? That was one of the most valuable things about our Arkansas property is that we had neighbors across the street and up the road that immediately saw us as part of their community even when we were only part-time up there. I, I would rather have that than an isolated place in the middle of nowhere with a remote property with anything valuable on it. I do like the idea of having a remote property that's like 20 acres with the house dead center just so nobody can see what's going on and everybody leaves me alone and nobody bitches about anything if I do something there. But in the end, I'd rather have a 20-acre property, house up near the road, near a neighbor who keeps an eye on the access, and if I want to do things like that, I can still go do that in the middle of my property. And I have the I have both worlds then. And I have and eventually if I'm really concerned about the worst of the worst occurring, I can create my own fallback location on my own property, a BOL at my BOL. Or it's like have a secondary established base that's more internal so I can live in good times in the good time zone and bad times in the bad time zone. Just saying. And that also could double as guest quarters. Right? Or if I'm going in with a group, places for people to stay when they're there together. You gotta think about all these layers, I think. Um, but security, I'm also looking at how secure is it if we are ever in a real breakdown as to its relative location. Um, my homestead property passes almost every test except those surface water tests. There's water access is not a problem, right? But there's no surface water here, and it's really hard to put any in. But it would not pass the secure test from a location as a bug-out location for me. It's too close to Fort Worth and surrounding suburbs. It would not make a, a – it's great homestead, not a good BOL, because of its relative location to other communities, Okay. Oh, relative location, another permaculture term, just by the way. So your location relative to other communities and access points. Even out in the sticks, I wouldn't want a property where I can see an interstate. If I can see the, in fact, if I can hear the interstate, I'm too close to it. Now, let's say it's super quiet, super calm night. You probably hear the interstate from 10 miles away. That's not what I mean. I mean, in day-to-day -day normal activities, if you can stand in your backyard and just everybody be quiet for a minute, you can hear trucks going down the interstate, you are too close to the interstate highway. State highways, county roads, all that stuff, good to go. Interstate, no. Do not want it uh, from a lot of reasons. From the investment standpoint, again, it makes the property less desirable. All right, so security, really important, good neighbors. Now, I already talked about having like that next-door neighbor that you know can kind of keep an eye on your place. And most communities like this, they will. But when I say good neighbors, I'm not talking about that neighbor. I'm talking about the greater neighborhood. And in a, in a rural community where things are spread out a little bit bigger, that might be over a couple miles. But just basically the kind of people you want to be around, the kind of people you, you, you like to associate with. You know, um, Unlike Rawls, I'm not going to tell you, 
go where people are church-going Christians. Now, go where people are like you. Where they go to church and, or not is not my issue. That's your issue for yourself. Right? But find people that when you are really considering making a buy, if you go talk to a few people that live in the area, if you go to the closest little town and you just start talking to people on the street, you get along. You feel like this is a place that you could be. Because if that's the case, there's so many problems that could happen that never will that it's, it's hugely advantageous. And then the last one for me is no restrictions. Um, some people think this hurts the investment potential of a property. And if you want an artsy-fartsy, freaking HOA neighborhood with gates and community and theme park activities, it probably does. But I don't want that. And I don't think that ever fits the type of property we're looking for. You start having restrictions, one of those is probably going to be you can't shoot stuff. Right. I, I don't really want to live anywhere where there's more government than comes from the level at the county and up. City, town, maybe if I have to, but I don't want to live anywhere where the people that live there were like, oh, you know what? We need more government. We need more government in our lives. We, somebody might have an old truck in their driveway, so we want to make sure that vehicles are not visible from the road. No, I don't want to live there. Or if you put in a fence, you have to come to the committee and show us the designs of your fence. I don't want restrictions from any form of government, but I certainly don't want restrictions from an artificial government created by pain-in-the-ass, busy-body, blue-haired old ladies. So no property owners associations, no homeowners associations, and no restrictions from city governments either. I want to live in a place, if I want to put an RV on there and live in it, I can. If I want to put a mobile home on it, I can. I'm not saying I'm going to, but if you tell me I can't, I gotta, then what else can't I do? So no restrictions. Now, when you're considering doing this, I think there's some things you should ask yourself before you commit to doing it. And now... There's nothing wrong with shopping, especially on the Internet, or driving around and looking at places and, and dreaming about one day. There's nothing wrong with that. It actually it gives a lot of purpose to moving forward in your life in a lot of ways, so as a, as a goal. But when it comes to commitment, okay, this is what we're going to do this year. First question I would say, are there things you really should do first? Are there some things that are such gaping holes in your financial health, um, or your your preparedness level, or any other part of your life, that you would just be better off using your time, resources, and energy to do first? And if so, push it back and do those. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be completely prepared for everything before you own a second property. There's plenty of people that own second properties that do it just from an investment recreational standpoint. And I don't think that's bad. I think you, in fact, that's actually the way, the way that I would angle this. I think that you should look for a property as a recreational and investment property so you love it. And it should serve the function as a fallback location by default. Right? So I'm not saying everything has to be pinned down perfect, but if you have major holes in your life and your lifestyle, and this isn't going to fill them, fill those holes first. And then come back to this a second time around. Next is, can I really afford it? It's really easy to convince yourself, oh, it's only $600 a month. I can afford that. Are you saving $600 a month right now? If you're not, you probably can't afford it. 
it's only $50,000, and I have $50,000. Do you have $50,001, or do you have $100,000, and you're going to take half of it and invest it into a property? In one instance, I'd say you can afford it. In the other instance, I'd say maybe you can't, or maybe buy, you know, I am, I hate debt, but debt on real property, I am okay with. So maybe in that $50,001 scenario of savings, it's a $25,000 down payment and a five-year payoff period so that you reserve some of your capital reserves. Can I really afford it? How often will I really use it? Yes, when I say recreational, I'll go fishing, I'll go hunting. Really, what's your life like right now? What's your life right, right now like? How often do you get away from your home right now? And if the answer is not often, but I would... Why don't you get away? I don't really have any place that I can afford to go. I've got some money. I could buy this piece of property. But when I start looking at like hotels and all that, that shit adds up. But if I just had a place I could go to, hell, I'd go. If that's true, then that makes sense. But if it's, I'm so busy, I work so much, I, I'm struggling to get by, or whatever it is, or in our case, we have a shitload of animals that depend on us, you know, that's going to affect how often I can get away. That's why the distance has to be pulled in, right? And that's why I'm looking at some other things I might do first, myself. Like if I can get this joker next to me to sell me that piece of land, I'd love to put in a couple small mobile homes and lease them out at a very, very low rate, like just barely over my cost, to people that I could consider part of my local community. I'd love to do that. And that probably makes a lot of sense for me to do first. It would expand my homestead, it would improve my resiliency, and it would free me from my land. If I had people I knew I could count on, because we're not going to do the live-in intern thing going forward. Um, so I'll probably do that first. Probably. Right? It all it depends, like everything else in permaculture. Um, but how often will I really use it? Don't buy a property that you think you're going to use and uh, that you're not going to use. Because you'll end up presenting it, especially if there's a payment associated with it. Uh, when we bought our RV, we're like, oh, we'll go camping four or five, six times a year with this thing. And I think we used it in three years six times, and we sold it for half of what we paid for it. Fortunately, we didn't have a payment on it. We didn't have debt on it. It was pretty easy to sell. Uh, we just sold it for cash, and we had it on Craigslist, I think, for less than a week before we had a buyer. But we thought about a lot of things in advance in buying it, and it was very a desirable piece of equipment to get rid of. Um, in other words, it was it was easy to sell. Desirable to get rid of, I guess, would be true as well. But we just didn't use it as much as we uh, as we thought we would. I mean, all I'm really saying here is just make sure that you're not misleading yourself. That you're not thinking, oh, I'll be out there every other weekend, and you're out there twice a year, and it's a big hassle. You know, how much do you have pets? Can they go with you? Do they travel well? If not, who will look after them? If you're a guy and you're thinking, well, I'll go out uh, every third weekend myself, and the wife can stay here with the kids and all, you know your family relationships. Is that actually going to fly very well, or is she going to resent you for it? I mean, if you're thinking, I'll get away with my two teenage boys, and mom and daughter can go shopping that weekend, and I'll do that twice a month or every other month or whatever it is, does that really work for your life? If it does, if that kind of thing goes on now and everybody's happy and, 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 and hokey with it and that's all good and well, fine. But understand this, if, if you're in a marriage and the other side of your marriage is never involved with what goes on at that place, they're going to see it as your thing. And that's not necessarily good. Now, if it's like, you know, 
four times a year, everybody goes, and another six times a year, you know, dad and, and son go to go hunting or fishing. Well, that's fine too, right? I mean, but just think about it a lot. How often will you really use it? And how logistically will that play into your existing life? Sometimes it's not as simple as people think. I mean, this is this is how you get sold timeshares, right? You be there all the time, and you can call it. People end up walking away from them because they they can't sell them and and they really don't use them and that happens with a lot of things in life especially big ticket items that you're buying for a lifestyle that doesn't actually fit your lifestyle so make sure that it fits and you may have to adjust things you may have to go you know what at an hour and a half away it fits and it might take me two years or three years to find a place that works like that and I'll just have to keep looking um, and that's fine. Or, you know, you might say this doesn't fit at all. Or, you know, two and a half hours fits. Before doesn't. So I have to rein my search in. Or it fits if it meets these certain criterias that makes mama happy. You know, it has to be able to have, you know, air conditioning and all that other good stuff. Uh, where I would be fine if it didn't. And trust me, folks, unless you've spent a lot of time with a spouse in a tent, don't. Right? Unless it's already something that just naturally happens, don't try it. It's not going to work out for the best. Um, a few things on, on like structures and, and what's doable and what's not. I think if you're going to buy a place and just tent camp on it, unless you are an experienced tent camper and you know what you're getting into, don't do it. Just, just go camping like 10 times in the next 20 weeks at, at regular campgrounds where you have more facilities than you'll have there. If you love every bit of it, fine. But, but kind of test the waters. Don't just think it's that easy. Tent camping gets old fast, especially when you don't have a lot of facilities. Um, I'm not saying it can't work. I'm just saying it does get old fast. If I was going to rely on a tent, I'd build a plywood platform and get like a GP Medium Army surplus tent. That's like a little cabin, basically. There, you know, And it still sucks, by the way. Um, but it's a hell of a lot better than like, you know, a, a nylon pop-up tent that's just so much better. If I was going to use an RV that I was going to tow with me when I went there, a small RV, which is an option. Um, I'm not the huge RV fan after owning one, but I but they beat a tent. Hands down, every time they beat a tent, they beat a tent, they beat a tent, they beat a tent. I would actually build basically not just a place for the RV to park. I would build like a porch, Right, so that when I park the RV that was right adjacent to or right next to, or you back it up and then you put a little thing out and you're boom, you've got an outdoor living space. Because RVs are cramped and tight, and if you can create an outdoor living space where the RV fits into, they're a lot more desirable. And um, I'd seriously consider if you're going the RV route, rent one and go camping it. Rent something as close to what you would buy as possible. And go camping it two or three times to it. It's, 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 it sounds expensive. It's less expensive than buying one. You know, or at least rent one twice. Take a trip, come home, wait a couple months later, take another one, do it in two different seasons, see what it's like, get a feel for it before you decide to rely on it. A, a hard wall structure is the best option. I would rather have a cabin built out of a 12 by 16 loft tough shed that I've turned into basically a small home than I would rather than to have an RV. The advantage of the RV is that you know it's self-contained. You know it's got it's got a tank that you as long as you can get to a dump station that takes care of human waste 
It's got a refrigerator and freezer generally that will run off of not just electricity, but propane. It's got wiring. It's done. But boy, if you're going to buy a place without a house, I would rather put a cabin on it. And you can do that for $10,000, $15,000. And I would rather do that than, than put $15,000, $20,000 into an RV. Or even buy a cheap ass old $7,000 RV that probably has three or $4,000 worth of problems. I'm not saying it can't work. Uh, MD Creekmore has a book called The Dirt, Te Dirt Cheap Survival Retreat, where he talks about using, you know, undesirable land and an old RV and all. And you can do it. But even in that book, he admits to a lot of, a lot of issues with it. Uh, again, I would go with a hard-walled structure any day. Uh, I would spend the money and have it spray foam insulated, and I'd do most of the work myself, and I'd bring somebody in to do a little bit that I couldn't do myself. If I was going to do it from a standpoint of what's best for a small cabin, I would go in and I would have a basement excavated, and I would put in a cinder block poured foundation basement and a walkout from the basement, and I would put a steel cover over the basement, bolted into the walls, and I would, I would use that as the foundation with some steel cross beams, and I would put my tiny house on top of that basement for a variety of reasons. One, all that space is storage, all of it's cool storage. Two, it's a bunker. At that point, it's a bunker, and it's a bunker from my biggest threat, tornadoes. So... That's why I would do it. So it's storage space, climate control, um, and, and, and security. And that's, that's how I would build kind of the, the, the perfect cabin for my use if I had to build a structure on there. And I would consider doing that maybe not so much with the basements if I had the choice of I have a house and now I want to build a couple other cabins on the property. That the, I, as I've looked at everything... Um, the most expedient thing is tough shed conversion. The most affordable thing is build from scratch yourself. And if you are handy or you have other people that are handy and you guys can do that kind of work fine, for me it's time expediency. I would rather have a shed delivered, put it onto a foundation, and start working it from there. Just a lot easier. You can order it with multiple windows, different doors, whatever, and you can do pretty nice for five to $6,000. And those, again, all of these options, better than an RV. And everybody that I've ever talked to that's ever done this, that's, that's, that's gone with the RV route, has gotten into a hard-walled structure as quickly as possible, and has said the same thing. I haven't found one yet that's like, yeah, we used an RV, and it was everything we dreamed it would be, and we would never do a hard-walled structure. It's, it's always the other way around. Now, I can think of one way to use an RV for circumvention purposes, and if I had one I could buy for a couple grand, if it would sell the concept, um... <laughs> I might do it. If I had a piece of property and I wanted to bring the grid in, and they said, well, you need to have a sewer system to do it, and I wanted to do an off-grid sewer system and take my time and build a build off-grid housing and build earthships or something like that, and I was going to take my time and do it over time, and I was in a place where nobody would bother me, and I was like, going to do this in the middle of the property, and I could say, well, here's a, here's a pad, and I'm going to put an RV here, and I need a... 50 amp hookup for an RV and a power meter for that and all, and that gets the power hooked up. Well, yeah, then it gets the power hooked up. And I'm probably never going to see anybody ever again after that. Um, it's probably not the best way to do things. It's probably better to be above board, but it might be one way to get power to a property fast. Is to, even if you don't have an RV, just say that's what I, it's for an RV. 
You know, and it might even be worth going in and pouring a little bit of concrete and putting up a post and saying, put it there. And I, I think that differs depending on where you are, what it takes to do that. Uh, but there are a lot of places if you want power on a property and it's going to go to a structure and that structure is for occupancy, you have to at least do a sewer system uh, like a septic tank or something like that. Some places you'll say, we have a composting toilet and that's good enough. And if that's good enough, I'd go that route. At least to get it established, you get the power in there. Um, if, if it's not, and they say you have to have a septic here, one, you're probably in a place with some restrictions, but that might be the only one. And there's a lot of places in Texas like that. That's the only thing you have to do. I want power here, fine. You put a septic system in that meets code for the county, and you're good. And we don't, we'll never come back and bother you again. It's probably worth it. The last question to ask yourself is, what do you want most out of this? What do you personally want the most out of this? And if it's just a fallback location, then think really hard about why you're doing it. Because I, I see that generally not working out. Because the probabilities are most likely that you will not be using it for that purpose. Do you want it for investment? Do you want it for recreation? If recreation, what are your primary recreational activities? If you're honest with yourself about why you really want a second property, you will most likely buy a property that, that, that you will love. And, and what I mean by that is if you convince yourself you just want it for fallback and recreation is not that important and community is not that important, access isn't that you just I just want a remote place to go hunting and fishing and, and to go if the shit hits the fan, you will probably compromise beyond what you should and you'll end up with a property that you don't really love and that will lead you to resent it and it will probably lead you to getting rid of it early and that means you probably will lose money on it you'll probably resent it. So if you're honest with yourself about that, what do you most want and what will make you comfortable and what will make your family comfortable, then you might spend a little more. It might take a little longer to find. It might take a little longer till you're ready. But when you do it, you'll have a much better result. I want to finish up with thoughts on teaming up. Um, I've gone in and out on my thoughts on this type of thing, especially with a bug out location. I can see relationships ruined and I can see relationships strengthened from teaming up on a bug-out location. I think it makes a lot of sense if we do certain things. And one of the first things is absolutely everyone needs to be clear going in on what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it, who's allowed to do what, who's not allowed to do what, and what have you. If everybody's clear on that type of thing, if everybody understands everybody else's motivations and desires and everybody's cool with what everybody wants, there's no reason it can't work. What happens is somebody says, well, I'm going to want to come out here and hunt all deer season long. And somebody else is thinking, I don't really like that idea because I don't think the property's big enough for three or four people to be hunting at the same time. And I think that if we're going to do this, we really need to have like some times that are accessible. And as far as who gets to come early in the season versus late in the season, we could create rotational things season to season for that or whatever. But they don't say it because they, they're like, I just want to get the deal to go through. And, and it's, that's just one example. That's little things like that that eventually lead to a problem. And it's usually a problem that the one person is, is disturbed about. And they think about it, and it's like I was talking about cancer metastasizing yesterday. Uh, the symptoms start to show as grumpiness and irritability, and then animosity. And then what happens is, in all of our lives, there's people that piss us off. 
And many times we internalize that anger. And then the person that we're comfortable venting anger to doesn't just get the anger we have at them. They get the anger that we have at other people we're not comfortable venting to. And that ends up being your buddy at your BOL. And so that stuff has to be headed off in the beginning. And the best way is for everybody to be clear about use and rights and goals and objectives. I think you have to have people with common ideas, common goals, and common values. And I think the most important one is common values. If you have people that have totally different ethical standards, conflicts will arise. That doesn't mean everybody has to be the same religion or, or whatever or wear the same pants. But the basic values that you hold as being truly important, if the people you're working with, and I say this is true in business, don't share those values. Don't do the deal. No matter how much you think it works otherwise, it will be the one thing that will derail you. Um, I think you need to define use and guest use very, very clearly. So what I mean by that is, well, what's this property to be used for? What can we do? Because I'm telling you, there's people that will go out and buy a 10-acre property, and they get 10 guys together, and it's 100 grand, and everybody ponies up 10 grand. And that's something most people can do. They can find $10,000. And it seems like a great idea. But if you put 10 people on there as a hunting property, and everybody's on an acre, I mean, that, you might as well go hunt in public hunting grounds. I mean, you probably have more space than that in most public, you know, hunting areas, state game lands and what have you. So that, that doesn't, if everybody's going to hunt at the same time, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Then it, then it works this way. Let's say you and me and three other guys, five of us get together. We buy a property consisting of 30 acres. Okay. Well, that's, if we're all hunting at the same time, we all can kind of be seven-ish acres to ourselves. It's a big property. It works, but if everybody brings a friend, that's cut in half. And if one guy brings two friends, well, what's going on? right? So the number of guests that can be there need to be discussed. And that number is probably fluctuating. So if I'm going to go out there in June to go fishing at the lake, and I want to bring 10 people with me, and as long as everybody cleans up and anything that's used is replaced, and my guests bring their own stuff and none of you guys are going to be there, it's likely that no one gives a shit. No one cares. It, it doesn't matter. If I'm going to bring kids and they're going to be setting fireworks off on the 4th of July, likely no one cares. Now, if I'm going to do either one of those things in November in the middle of deer season, it's likely that other people care. So these are discussions to have in advance because the primary use of this property is not going to be to hold off the zombie hordes The primary use, especially in a group like this, is going to be recreation. Recreation and vacation, and maybe investment. The other thing would be, what happens when one party wants out? And I would say that, at minimum, the other parties are given first right of refusal to buy out the interest. And you discuss, well, if the property's been improved at that point, you want to leave, what part percentage of the improvements will be applicable? Think of this like a prenuptial agreement for a marriage where everybody's being reasonable going in. People are not trying to make sure that they screw the other party over. They're just trying to make sure that the original intent is met as best as possible. So if, if you and me and three other guys buy this property together and John wants to leave and John comes to us and says, well, I think the property's worth a million dollars now for whatever reason. That's a problem. 
Because if we pay $200,000 for the property, it's not worth a million dollars, and he is not getting $200,000 to leave. It's not happening. So we have to just basically say that improvements are factored at 10%. So any money that goes into the property collectively, if we put $50,000 into the property collectively, it's a $5,000 improvement in the property, and you get a, a grand out of it. Because you don't want people that are thinking about leaving You only want people that are making the contingency to leave. And then I would also have to say that if you decide that nobody in the group right now wants to pony up and and, and do it, because I, I see a problem if, let's say, we do that and we decide that his share is $20,000 and nobody else wants to pony up and I come up with $20,000 and buy it, now I've got a greater ownership stake. So now I should have greater rights to the property. This starts to ruin the whole dynamic. I think in that situation, if you design the property to accommodate five owners, you should be looking for a new owner. And that any single person of the four, under a unanimous vote, should be able to say, I don't want that guy. And then you just tell the guy, I'm sorry, you didn't, you didn't pass. Who said no? None of your business. I'm sorry. We, have, we told you that going in. We have pre-existing agreement. If anybody says no for any reason, you're out. And we got to know. And that guy, I would have a, a good old-fashioned cigar and, and scotch meeting over a weekend. At the end of that weekend, then I would take a vote. In fact, I'd probably say everybody go home, we'll vote off-site by email, and we'll let Tim know whether he's in or not. That, that's probably how I would handle that. Um, and these things start to show you why I'm iffy on this. Um, I would also say you really need to decide between common ownership, totality of common ownership, and defined areas going in. One way you could do it, if you had a pretty big property, is say, okay, here's a common area, and then we're going to divide the property into five segments, and as long as everybody's happy with their segment, this is our common area where we all hang out, this is our segment we can do whatever we want to with. It's clean, it's not very efficient. It's not very efficient at all. It just isn't. A hunting property, I could see basically, I'm going to choose an area for two stands. You're going to choose an area for two stands. We're going to make sure they're spaced out good enough. I'm going to take care of my own feeders. You're going to take care of your own feeders uh, or whatever. Or, you know, you, you're going to run my scrapes. So I don't want anybody in there. That I can see. And that might change year to year through discussion and what, what have you. Um, and, and that I get. Anything beyond that doesn't make sense logistically. If you really feel that way, you're probably with the wrong people. Because what are you going to do? Like when, if you put your own little tiny cabin in, Tom comes walking over. Hey, Tom, you're on my property, right? Um, or oh, I don't like that you're doing that. Well, it's my property, so screw off. It's our property. This type of a community needs to be a community, and it's a, it's, a, it's a temporary use property it probably makes more sense that you would have something like a main house and then cabins around it, and the main house kind of serve like a day room and things like that. Because what you could do in that scenario is actually very powerful. So the main house could be like where everybody eats. So none of your cabins need a kitchen. Maybe a tiny kitchenette just for a midnight snack or whatever, right? Um, and a big place to eat and what have you. And a lot of gear could be stored in rooms in that main house. And that people still have their space to go get away from each other. And until you build those, everybody can just pick a room. There's, there's a lot of power in this. There's, there's many advantages, but I, I would probably only do it 
with people that either we all go, okay, this is a $200,000 property, right? And, and there's, there's 10 of us and here's 20 grand each and we're done. You know, I mean, something like that. Or you're going at least 50% down and I financially vet every person there and I see the payment is no hardship. And then you got to have a discussion. What if Tom can't make his payment this month? And my initial instinct would be, I'll make it for him. But how long does that go on? And at what point do we have to come to Jesus' meeting with Tom and say, dude, you're not pulling your weight. We've got to come up with an exit strategy for you because we can't keep covering your cost. Right? And do I cover it or do we all cover it? Do we create a, a reserve fund? And what are the criteria to access the reserve fund? I think that the way I would probably do it is I would say, okay, there's, there's, there's 10 of us. If we all put $200 into a reserve fund, and it could just be a, 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 a strong box with cash in it, right? If we do that as $200 a month, it will put into a reserve fund. And if that's one payment for one member, and we just say, okay, we're going to all do that for the next year, then we have 12 payments. And we say, okay, at that point, it just sits there. It's just there as a reserve fund. And if anybody needs it, they equally contributed, so they equally withdraw. And then it's expected that they make re repayment of it. And you might say, anybody that needs to use it for any reason can use it once a year with no repayment. Anything beyond that has to be repaid. And that once it's used, it has to be replenished, and we replenish it as a group. You know? And if you don't trust the person... To not abuse that, don't go in to deal with them. I mean, that's all I can say. Well, what if Tom uses it every year once just to get out of it? Well, then Tom doesn't need to be in the group. And if you feel that way about Tom, don't do this deal with him. This is this is about, if you're going to do this as a group, you got to do it as a tight group, right? But I think there are a lot of advantages. I think that if you do it right, a lot of these issues, just like if you talk about them initially, you put up a procedure, you put it on the shelf, And then life goes on and you never deal with it. It's And then I'd, I'd write it all down. I'd write it all down. And when somebody says, well, no, you said, no, let's just take a look at the agreement we all agreed to. It says right here that this is how we would handle this. So we're going to do what the agreement says unless there's unanimous 100% agreement that we're going to make an exception. And if there's not, we're not going to do it because this is what we agreed to. It solves so many problems. I would also have a memorandum of understanding. All parties agree to never sue any other party in the group, period, over any issue at all, ever. The group itself will solve its own problems. And if you wouldn't sign that memorandum of understanding with me, I wouldn't do the deal with you. I'd just be like, we're not doing it. But I, I, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Got that from Joel Salatin, by the way. When he sets up people with their fiefdoms on his farm, they sign a letter of understanding saying neither side will sue the other side, ever. Under any circumstances, ever. And that just filters people that are predispositioned to sue because they didn't get what they wanted. I believe as grown men, we can solve our problems. Grown men and women can sit down and solve any problem that there ever is if they're reasonable with each other. If I feel you owe me $10,000, but I absolutely know there's no way in hell you have $10,000, what can you do? How can you make this right? And we can come to an agreement on some level that 
both parties try to do what's right to the other party. And that is easy to do if people don't run to the man to solve their problems. The advantages, though, are massive. When I Again, when I look at three-acre three property here and I think about all the things I want to do to it, it's overwhelming sometimes. I start thinking like 30 acres. It's wooded. I don't have as much to do, but, man, there's always something to do. Or, okay, now I want to – let's say I get my 30-acre property and it's got a decent house on it and I've got five guys versus just me. And we decide, you know what? We want to put a, a, a pond in, and we can get about an acre pond in, and the cost of that installation is about $10,000, okay? I either got to come up with $10,000 or $2,000. Either way, I get my lake. Which one would you rather do, pay $10,000 for the lake or two? And see, I'd want, to be in a, I'd want to be in that group with people that something like that, like an improvement of that magnitude can be done once a year or once every other year. Out of pocket. Like, they're not, it's not gonna, I don't want, you know, necessarily a person doesn't have to be daddy freaking Warbucks, but if we're like, hey, we want to put a pond in, and like, Tom's always broke, and Tom can never contribute to these things ever at all. That's not who I want in a group like this. Because he probably shouldn't be in the group in the first place, because financially he's probably not prepared to be. Because there's an expense here. And if you can't afford anything beyond it, then you can't afford it. That's something I want you to understand about any expense in your life. If an expense puts you at a point where any additional expense will write you off, like I can't do any more at all, then you shouldn't go that far. You should always have headroom. You put in a dam, you always have freeboard, right? When you have expenses and budget, you always have to have headroom. And if you don't, you've got a real problem. A um, few final thoughts on bug allocations. Again, I think it's really important that we start right from the beginning with the three reasons we would have them. Fallback, recreation, investment, and focus on recreation investment. The fallback is a duh, right? It just happens. It just If you have a property that meets your needs for recreation and investment that's not where you are now, It is a fallback location, all right? And it's the recreation and investment components that will make the property both enjoyable, profitable, and a safe risk, right? Anytime you buy anything, there's a risk. But what is the, what is the risk mitigation strategy? So when you buy an $80,000 SUV, your risk mitigation strategy is to lose money when you sell it, if you have to sell it, period. Thousands and thousands of dollars. If everything works out for the best, You're going to put thousands into it. They're still going to go away because the vehicle will depreciate in value. You, you don't take that approach with property. Your risk mitigation strategy is to buy property that under normal conditions should appreciate in value. Okay? A recreational component allows you to get use of the property and enhances the investment potential. The things that make a property desirable, water, access, structure, distance, And relative location, grid access, near a small town, security, good neighbors, and low to no restrictions. The question is to ask yourself, are there things I should do in my life first? Can I really afford this? How often will I really use it? What do I want most from it? If I'm going to team up, I need to make sure everybody's clear going in. I need to look for people with common goals and values. 
I need to define use and guest policies very clearly with everybody. I need to decide between common ownership and defined areas. And if I'm doing defined areas, I better know why. I mean, if the property's just huge, it's just massive, you have 100 acres and 10 guys, and everybody takes like a 10-acre segment, and then they have like a community center, that I get, okay? But, you know, five guys on 30 acres and everybody's taking a piece, I, I think it makes very inefficient use of the resources that are available. Um, if you're going to do uh, a group buy, I would really look to people either paying cash or going very heavy down payment, very low payments, things that are very manageable by all parties. And I think it's very doable. You might have a property you guys pay $200,000 for. If you can come up with $100,000 in cash, you have a $100,000 payment. Uh, a property like that, you might have five to $700 in payment. So if everybody's in it for $100, $115 a month, anybody that I don't think is going to be able to pay that, I'm not going to do the deal with. Uh, and the advantages are there if you put the right group together. And all in all, there's a lot... There's a lot to love about owning a second piece of real estate, either individually or with a partner or a group of partners. But there's a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of concerns that go along with it. You have to decide, is it right for your life? And if it is, then be strategic and take your time and find what really works for you. And it really can enhance both your quality of life and your safety and security from a standpoint of disaster mitigation and financial health going forward. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
shoot.